Alrighty, thank you, Jimmy. Good morning, church. My name is Ross. Nehemiah 8 is where we will be. And so if you have your Bible with you, why don't you turn there with me? If you're new, we teach verse by verse. That's our primary mode of teaching, verse by verse through uh, the scriptures. And we're in a multi-week study of the ancient text of the book of Nehemiah, which you can find um, in the Old Testament in your scriptures. Where we left off last week, uh, the walls of Jerusalem were built. And so Nehemiah uh, leaves the palace in Susa in Persia. Um, where the people who had overthrown uh, Jerusalem um, were reigning from. He serves as a cupbearer to the king, Octazos. He travels down um, to Jerusalem with permission to rebuild the walls. And where we left it um, at the end of Nehemiah 7, the, the walls are built. And Nehemiah has then ordered and obtained an accurate and up-to-date census of who was with them and the available resources that they had so that Jerusalem could function not just as a place of safety, not just as a place of commerce, not just as a place of trade, but also as it was supposed to always function, the people of God gathering together in a place of worship. So here's where we left it at the end of chapter seven last week from verse 73. It says, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now, if you're tracking along, this is actually quite helpful. We see a little bit of how life was structured in these ancient cities. You see how it notes that many of these people weren't living inside the walls of Jerusalem. They were living in their towns. And so you had this urban core, right? Kind of the hipsters of the day who live inside the gates of Jerusalem. They can afford the high-rise apartments and the rent that goes there, right? They live there full-time and they have very particular coffee orders. But then you have these small developments of housing outside of the city gates, where people commute daily into the city to participate in trade and to participate in civic and to participate in the religious life of Jerusalem. These are like the suburbs of the day. And that makes me happy because I'm a suburbanite, right? Because I worship comfort um, with everything um, in me. And so uh, the, these are the suburbs of the day. They probably have overbearing HOAs and passive aggressive yard signs and uh, secret community forums where people get to speak about suspicious looking newcomers, you know, residential stuff, all of the, the typical stuff that happens uh, in the suburbs. So things seem to be going pretty well. Much progress has been made, but there is much yet to do. You see, the purpose of Jerusalem wasn't just so that the people of God could have a flourishing life in the worldly sense of flourishing. The purpose of Jerusalem was that it would be a place where the people of God could rightly worship the one true God, not just for themselves, but as a testimony to the nations, right? And here is the tension, right? They're still not doing that. And so Nehemiah needs to set that straight. And so he tells us that it is the seventh month. Now that might be one of those details that we just read and go like, cool, it was July in our calendar, right? It actually wasn't, it was a, another month. It's the start of the month, Tishri, right? And you know what that month is in the Hebrew calendar? Some of you Bible nerds know. Um, it's the new year, right? It's the Jewish new year. And there are lots of sacred days of remembrance, according to the law, that are supposed to take place in Jerusalem that month. And they haven't taken place in an orderly fashion for years. And so the people are failing to rightly worship God as a testimony to the nation. So what we will see 
is Nehemiah and Ezra, who finally makes an appearance in Nehemiah's journals. He's, he's been there at the same time as Nehemiah. In fact, he, he kind of was there a little bit before him setting things up. We're going to see these two leaders calling the people of Jerusalem back to the commandments of the law that they were supposed to keep in the month of Tishri. Right? The people hadn't been doing it. And if you, if you want to, you can go read Second Chronicles 36, which is the precursor to them going into exile, and you will see why the people hadn't been doing it. They had gotten to a place where they mocked the edicts of God. And so Second Chronicles 36 tells us that prophets come and warn the people of Jerusalem, guys, you're not keeping the law, you're supposed to keep the law. And what happens from the people? You're so stupid. That's so old-fashioned. We don't do that anymore. That's super legalistic. Don't you understand the times and the days in which we live? Society has advanced. We don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Get out of here, prophets, right? And they reject the edicts of God. They reject the authority of his word as presented through the prophets. And that's what gets them into the mess that they are in. All right, so we're gonna read through the whole of chapter eight. And the structure today is gonna be a little bit different. I'm gonna make one main point. Now before you get excited, that's kind of cheating, right? Because the one main point has five sub points, all right? So I'm gonna make six main points today. But if I tell you it's one, you'll feel like it just goes quicker, right? Um, uh, But it's just one main point, which as I read this text, I come away and go like, that's the main point of this text. That's what it's trying to tell us. And then it gives us a whole lot of ways in which that is true. There are implications and points of clarity. All right, so you ready? Here's the main point. For those of you who write things down, I love you nerds. You are the best, right? You warm my heart when I see people writing stuff down, even if you're just drawing a little you know, insulting diagram with me, which we've had um, in the offering box. Thanks. Um, uh, thanks for nothing. You're like, I contributed a little diagram of what I thought of the preacher. Um, the, I, I released the Holy Spirit into your heart uh, to work on you and to convict you. Um, but I love it when people write down, and you're going to see why today. I think we've forgotten how to be attentive to the word of God. And I'm hoping that the spirit will bring some clarity and some conviction to us today. Here's the main point. The people of God, of which we are now a part, right? The people of God are called to center their lives on the word of God. The people of God are called to center their lives on the word of God. The the word isn't supposed to be peripheral. It isn't supposed to be optional. It isn't supposed to be on the fringes. It isn't supposed to be something that we step into and step out of. It isn't supposed to be something that we negotiate with. Either it's the word of God or it's not. And if it's the word of God, then it should be our epistemological anchor, right? It should be what we anchor our sense of what truth is on. And in a postmodern society, everything's fighting for truth. Everything's fighting to say, no, no, this is the truth. This is the truth. And now we have, oh, no, this is your truth, right? Um, Which can be held by you, even though it's different from someone else, because your truth is your truth. No one sees the irony of the fact that those two truths are inevitably going to collide into each other at some point, right? The people of God have a different anchor. Their epistemology is formed by the word of God, and it sits in the center That's the way we're supposed to be. Let's look at it. It says, and when the seventh month had come, Tishri, right? The people of Israel were in their towns. Verse one, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, I love it, it's an imperative. They commanded, they instructed, they pleaded, right? They said, Ezra, 
the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Bring the Torah. Bring the first five books of our Bible. Bring those to us. We need to hear from the Lord. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Okay, main point, the people of God are called to center their lives on the word of God. How do they do that? Well, the first way that they do that is through gathering to hear the word in a spirit of unity, right? They gather to hear the word in unity. See, the first day of the seventh month was a sacred day. It was a holy day, right? And a holiday for the people of Jerusalem. It's known as the Feast of the Trumpets. I'm glad we don't have this one anymore because trumpets uh, give me a headache. Um, But it was called the Feast of the Trumpets. You can read about it in Leviticus 23 or in Numbers 29. It was set aside as a day of solemn rest. And it was commanded that the people should have a holy convocation, a gathering, an assembly together. You see, it isn't enough. It isn't enough. We learned this so painfully over the last couple of years for the people of God to live happy little scattered lives, isolated from each other and free to form their own epistemology off of their engagement with the everyday world. No, God commanded that his people would regularly gather together and that when they did, they would open his word, and that as they did that, they would be united under the authority of the voice of God. And look what it does. It's beautiful. They gathered from all the surrounding towns, it says here, as one man. Now you might go, well, what about the ladies, right? Well, you're going to see that there, and it's incredible. The emphasis here in the word man isn't on gender, right? That's our English kind of presupposes that, but the emphasis here isn't on gender. The emphasis is that they are united in a sense of contingency. <laughs> Let me explain this. There's been a few big words this morning. I don't even understand some of the things that I've said, all right? But if you can order Starbucks, you can learn some theological terms, all right? Yeah? Okay. It's true. They're united in contingency. Another way to say this would be they gathered together as one entity, and that entity was united by the fact that they weren't God. In a gathering of God's people, There really are only two entities. There's God and there's not God. And so as we gather here together today, our role is not God, right? And so we come to his word and say, but he is God and he speaks to us. And so we are united in the humility that that brings, right? It's a great leveler if you think about it. In a gathering of God's people, it can be a a CEO next to someone experiencing homelessness, next to a stay-at-home mom, next to a teacher in AISD, next to young children, next to someone in the final stages of life. And you know what they all are? Not God. (laughs) And we put in degrees of humanity so that we can kind of rank them and feel better about how we're doing. But really, there's only two degrees, God and not God, independent and contingent. And this is, how the, this is the essence of what they say. They gathered as one man. They gathered as one manifestation of not-godness, of humanity. There's such humility in that unity. And this is why they tell Ezra, go bring the book of the law. They aren't interested in Ezra's witty illustrations, any stories about his week, right? This is, this is how I make my living. But they say, no, no, no. bring the Bible, Bring the word of God, because even you, Ezra, you're not God. And we want to hear from the Lord. They know that what they need 
is authority, divine truth. And they unify it in their understanding that they aren't the possessors of or the originators of that divine truth. They need it from God's word. Look at what this united humility brings about. A gathering of men and women, a religious gathering of men and women together in that context would have been scandalous. No other worldview did this, right? But they united in their not godness. And who else is there? Children. Anyone who's old enough to understand in their thousands, a sort of gathering that would never ordinarily happen in the ancient world. You see, friends, listen. A high view of God's word gathers a group of unlikely equals. A high view of God's word gathers a group of unlikely equals. That's actually what we're doing here today as you look around this room. Some people might impress you. Other people might not. You know what they all are? Not God. Just like you. And so we all gather in humility this morning saying, Lord, what we need is you. That's why it's so important that we still gather regularly and consistently with the saints. It brings us into a place with people who aren't like us, but puts us into a posture which says, open the book. We need the word. That's why our liturgies here at the stone are always gonna be formed on the teaching of the word. Not because we wanna highlight preaching, but because we're not God. And we wanna hear from the word of God. Can I just be your pastor for a sec? Don't know why I ask your permission. None of you got microphones. Um, Some of us aren't prioritizing this sort of gathering and it's showing. When we collect data on church attendance, not like going to church doesn't make you a Christian, right? Like Holland spoke to us uh, last week, right? No, not at all. But Christians go to church. They gather and they say, bring the book. And they do it as often as they can. When we gather the data, like our best attenders are pulling like 60%, Right? What does it mean? What does it show? It shows where our priorities are. It shows where our sense of self is. Oh, I don't need to be reminded that I'm not God this morning. I don't need some sense of truth that's gonna override my own epistemology. Friends, some of us don't walk in longing for someone to open the book. We don't pay attention. We don't write stuff down. We don't really anchor ourselves in the sermon. I know I've done it. You know how many sports scores I've checked in sermons? Lots, right? Lots, lots, lots of sports scores, right? Uh, I've updated many, you know, passive-aggressive social media posts about what I thought about the sermon instead of just saying, open the book. I need the word of God. You've got my full attention. Friends, this is starting to show in our church communities in a lack of unity. You can only be unified if you think that the word is superior, right? In a lack of humility, in a lack of vibrance in our faith. Verse three, let's move on. And he read from it facing the square. Oh, I love this text. Before the water gate from early morning until midday. He read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy from 6 a.m. to 12. I never wanna hear about sermon length again. in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, right? And the ears, listen, look at this. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were attentive, they weren't distracted, they were saying, oh, more. 
and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattahiah, Shemaiah, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. The key to Old Testament names, just read them quick with conviction, right? And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Look at this. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all of the people stood. Not only did they listen to a six-hour reading of Torah, they stood for the whole thing. We struggle when Jimmy wants to sing three songs in a row. We're like, oh, goodness gracious me. Maybe if I pretend I'm just super contemplative. Um, I can get down in my seat here. This is unbelievable, guys. I didn't come for a workout. I came for church. <laughs> Friends, the people of God center their lives on the word of God. How do they do it? By submitting to the word in attentive humility. By submitting to the word in attentive humility. Friends, sometimes I think that we forget that we are physical creatures and just how much we need tangible reminders of spiritual realities. What did they do to show these people to pay attention? They built a platform. Why'd they do that, right? Sure, so that his voice could project, sure. But also so that the highest thing in the congregation, the thing that stood above everything else, was God's word. <laughs> it was such a tangible reminder that their place was beneath it, submitting to it, and they stood to attention when it was opened. They refused to be passive. They refused to be casual hearers of God's word. Um, we're coming up on um, my least favorite holiday thing, which is Halloween. Um, my reasons for that are legion, mainly because it makes the neighborhood look really messy. Um, <laughs> and because I can't resist candy. Um, but I like at this time of year to remember Reformation Sunday, right? Okay, and that's just like Christian nerdy way of going like, let's redeem Halloween and make it about uh, some other dead saints who are way less scary, but also a little scary. And so we remember the Reformation, right? And a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to a German town called Wittenberg. Uh, it's historic because it's where Martin Luther lived uh, and it's where he nailed the 95 theses to, to the church door. It's, it's credited as the birthplace of the Reformation in many ways, right? And so some friends and I went and we visited All Saints Church where Luther pastored and, and where he preached for decades. And, and, and I got to go up into his pulpit, right? No, I didn't ask permission because it wouldn't have been granted, but I went anyway, right? Um, because uh, Luther would have had the, that way. He didn't believe in superiority of clergy. His pulpit is still there. You know what's amazing in that church is the way that it's built? His pulpit is high up stuck to one of the side walls, right up top there by that speaker stack um, up in the corner. And it has this narrow circling staircase to get to it. Well, why did he do that? Well, he wanted it to be high so that the people would know that the word of God was supreme above them. They were beneath. He wanted the stairs to be narrow and steep as he wanted to remember every time he went to the pulpit that he was going to a lofty task one which he wasn't qualified to fulfill but for the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. Now Luther was also a little crazy and so his tomb is directly beneath that pulpit <laughs> for the express purpose that all subsequent pastors had to preach over his dead body. Um, but that is a topic for another sermon. Um, but it is something that I'm putting into my technical writer uh, of employment here at the Stone. I want to be buried right here so that anyone else who preaches here is like, oh man, I better stick to the text. Um, 
Friends, here at the Austin Stone, one of our core convictions is that we are ruled by God's word. Ruled by God's word. That's a strong word, right? But it's essential to what we do and how we do it. God's word is above us. It's above us. We're not equals. When we disagree, we are the ones who are incorrect. And that happens often in my life. I've got some thoughts. I've got some ideas. Then I go to the scripture. I'm like, man, my ideas be dumb, right? They're stupid. They have to submit to, to, to those things, right? The result of this in the people is that they're able to be attentive to a six-hour reading of the Pentateuch. It's easy to be attentive to something that you value. It's easy to be attentive to something that you think that you need to know. I'm kind of like borderline ADHD. I don't say that lightly. Uh, Like seriously, I think if I went into high school again, I think there would be a a genuine diagnosis. I struggle to pay attention to a lot of things at the same time. And so um, I find crowded rooms disorienting because I'm trying to lock into one thing, right? And it makes me a bit of a tyrant in my home because there's some things I really want to pay attention to, right? Like the start of a Formula One race. I want to pay close attention, right? Because the only thing that's going to happen in that race, other than the spending of hundreds of millions of dollars, is going to happen in the first 15 seconds, right? And so my kids are running around. They're being godly and kind most of the time. and also, But I'm like, quiet down, quiet down. Daddy's got to pay attention because this matters, right? It matters to me. What a sad thing to matter. But I, I don't struggle to pay attention to that. I can lock into that. And yet often struggle to pay attention to the word. What does it say about how I value the word? Friends, how's your time spent? What does it say about what you value? How long is a college football game? 19 hours or something? (laughs) That's what it feels like. Four 15-minute quarters, 19 hours. Okay. (laughs) We don't struggle. We'll pay attention there. We'll pay attention there. Binge watch Netflix. We don't struggle. I'll watch a whole series. We'll pay attention there while we value it. What sad things to value? Struggle to pay attention to the Word of God. Are you attentive? Do you see it as above you or something to be constantly negotiated and explained away? Verse six. And Ezra blessed the Lord. This is beautiful. The great God. And all the people answered. Here's your text, right? Amen. Amen. Lifting up their hands. The people of Israel were charismatic. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Banai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelatai, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people um, understood the reading. People of God center their lives on God's word. How? By responding to the word with worshipful curiosity. By responding to the word with worshipful curiosity. The word, friends, in this context has physical and tangible and immediate responses. Ezra, we're told, blesses God. You know what that means? He breaks out in spontaneous worship. He just can't help it. He's reading the word and he just, oh, God is so good, right? And the people respond by going, amen, amen, amen. He has to be praised because the truth and the reality of how good he is, I have to say something. And so they respond in verbal agreement. I know we've never seen that in this church, but but it happens sometimes in the people of God. And then they respond in physical agreement, shouting amen, bowing down with their faces, lifting their hands. It is so sad to me 
that we have created categories in churches today where churches are either known for word or for vibrant worship. (laughs) It seems that you're either known for these vibrant corporate physical manifestations of the holiness of God, right? And then you have little to no commitment to robust teaching. Or you're known for great teaching, but then your singing comes across like the tomb still has a body in it, right? Like everyone's been baptized in lemon juice and they're just kind of sad, right? (laughs) Good theology, good theology should lead to vibrant, full-bodied doxology. R.C. Sproul said it this way, theology must always end in doxology. The joyful praise of our creator, otherwise we have not truly studied the things of God. Raymond Brown said, lively, relevant, biblical exposition ought to promote genuine adoration. Just as inspired singing can create a longing for more of the truth we have been exalting. Neither must be allowed to become an end in itself. Friends, here's our commitment at the stone. We teach the Bible with all that we have. And then we ought to worship God with our whole selves. Can I just plead with you? I'm gonna irritate some of you, I know. Don't hold back in worship when you hear about the goodness of God in the message. If you believe it, show him. Proclaim it. Inform your face, right? Send it a note. God is good. Oh yeah, tell your eyes. Tell your knees. Clap your hands. Lift your hands. Bow your heads. Say amen. Like the people of God always have. Always have. I did a study of the Psalms about a decade ago. One of my most startling discoveries was, you know the the Psalms call you to praise God all the time, right? We've got one English word, praise. You know that almost every time the Psalms tell us to praise God, it has some kind of physical manifestation of how you should do that? Sometimes it's raise your hands, sometimes it's bow your knees, sometimes it's dance around in a circle. I, I didn't like that when it didn't make it in uh, to, the, to the ESV, right? But it was always expected amongst the people of God that there'd be a physical manifestation of an objective reality. God is good, therefore I am moved and I display it. I know that some of you think that this posture of worship is more biblical than another. It, the opposite is true. This is biblically aberrant, to be honest. The people of God have never done this, ever. Let's not be scared of saying, oh, are we charismatic now? No, we'll be biblical. We're biblical. We hear about the goodness of God. We lift our hands. We bow our faces. We say amen, all right? (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord. One guy in the room is not a Baptist. I'm so excited. But then look also at their curiosity. It's not flippant, right? This doesn't make like light-hearted Christians. They break up into smaller groups so that they can understand the meaning of what they heard. They want more and so they lean in. They hear the scriptures and they're like, I wanna know more, not less. They prioritize understanding. They refuse to go home. They remain in their places so they can hear more of what God had to say. Friends, are you pressing in, trying to learn more about God's word? Sunday to Sunday is no kind of diet for growth. We do our best, but if this is it, if this is the only time you're getting the word, you shouldn't expect to grow, right? In, in wisdom and understanding and in, and in worship. 
You notice that there's stuff in the word here that you don't understand? That was the same for them. They're like, Ezra, send us some people down here because I don't understand this, right? They're reading Deuteronomy. Are you surprised? They're like, I don't get what this thing means. And so he sends priests out into the midst of them and they have little small group gatherings. You see, the scriptures are clear, but they aren't always easy. And it takes a community to do faithful interpretation and for you to get the most out of the scriptures. Let me ask you plainly this morning. Are you in a group? Why not? Why not? I'm too busy. No, you're not. No, you're not. We can devote how many hours to kids' sport? How many? And I love it. It's cool. I mean, maybe your kid's going to go pro. I'm I'm sure they're very good. (laughs) Friends, do we value this? Do we value the word? Verse 9. And your kid is excellent. I'm sorry. They they are. I've heard the reports. They're brilliant. All right. And Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. What a commandment. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The people of God centered their lives on the word of God. How did they do that? By being strengthened by the word in conviction and in joy. Here is what will happen. I've got to wrap this up. Here is what will happen if you elevate the word, right? It will convict you of sin. It will. That's why sometimes in my life I've stopped reading it because every time I read it, I'm reminded of like, oh man, oh, I was supposed to be doing that. Ugh. Right? Oh, I wasn't supposed to be doing that, but that's my favorite thing. Right? And so it reminds us of our fallen state. It will become obvious that there is a significant gap between how you live and who God made you to be. It's part of what the scriptures do. And so as the people hear the law, they weep. Why? They haven't kept the law. And they're convicted by the holiness of God and the lack of holiness in their midst. This is a vitally important response. It's part of what leads us to repentance, right? It's good. There is a kind of godly grief that is an appropriate and helpful response to God's word. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Don't you want that? salvation without regret. Well, what do you need? Then you need some godly grief that leads to repentance. There's a worldly grief though as well, and that just produces death. That's a self-absorption. That's just a beating yourself up. That's just an endlessly guilty conscience. That's not what godly grief is. If we read the word though, there should be a response of godly grief. Now you might go, but wait, why then does Nehemiah tell them to not mourn and to not weep? Well, Here's where we need some context, friends, and this is so wonderful. Because you know what immediately follows the feast of the trumpets in Israel's calendar? You know what comes next? Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The day when the sins of the people are placed on the sacrificial lamb. And the sins of people are are, are atoned for 
and taken away from them. Here's what Nehemiah and Ezra are saying, please listen. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have rebelled. Yes, we have rejected God's word, but the joy of the Lord is our strength because we remember, listen, that it brings God joy to atone for the sins of his people. It brings him joy to be reunited with them in holiness. Uh, Many of you have got this on a coffee cup, right? Or like on something from Hobby Lobby on the way up your stairs in that dead space you didn't know what to do with, right? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The word here for strength is translated in almost every other occurrence in the Bible as a stronghold, as an impenetrable fortress. Our friends, when the enemy attacks, we have a stronghold we can run to, the stronghold of the Lord's joy, but not just his joy, his joy in atoning for your sins, Do you see how that changes repentance? Now I want to repent because it gives God joy to forgive me. That's different from how we perceive God, isn't it? We perceive him, or I do anyway, up in heaven going like, I can't believe it. Again? Gross. What is wrong with you? We've spoken about this. The scripture says, no, the joy of the Lord is our stronghold. And so now don't weep. Yom Kippur is coming and he's telling us that the sins are taken care of and that that brings him joy and that you can share in that joy through genuine repentance. (laughs) So now we ought to be the most free of all the people in the world because now we're free to repent. We don't need to defend our reputation. We're free to weep and to do it publicly, to acknowledge our own rebellion, not pretending to be better than we are. But then, oh friends, don't stay there. We're also free to rejoice (laughs) with the joy of the Lord as a sign of faith that he loves to atone for our sins. What do the scriptures tell us? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. He was our Yom Kippur sacrifice. Why? It brought him joy to do it. He loves to atone for our sins. Let's close this out, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the Lord. Don't you love this? Now the dads, right? The heads of houses gathered together with Ezra. They're like, hey, that one service wasn't enough. Let's do this again. Let's round it up. I want the word of the Lord. Come on. I want to be able to teach my family. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. They'd been commanded to do this and for generations, they just haven't. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. People of God center their lives on the word of God. How? By obeying the word with thanksgiving. By obeying the word with hope. And by obeying the word with congruent faith. I love the term congruent, right? 
that's in accordance with, right? The same as, a faith that actually extends into every area of our life. Friends, I wish I had more time, right? I wish we were a church that could listen to the law of God for six hours, but I know that we're not. But this is fantastic, but I need to go through it quickly. The heads of households coming to the priest looking for more to obey. Why? Obedience leads to greater obedience. Just as rebellion leads to greater rebellion. Have you noticed that? Sin kind of creeps in little increments, right? Most people don't just wake up one day and blow up their lives. They take little steps, little steps, little steps. And then one day the step to blow up their life isn't a big step at all because they've taken thousands of them. Obedience is the same. We obey in small ways. And what does it do? It makes us want to obey again. It makes us want to obey again. We train our conscience. We start to hear the voice of the Lord. We start to understand the word. We start to submit to it. So the people look, they discover they're supposed to keep the festival of the booths for a week in the seventh month. This meant living in a temporary shelter for seven days. Now just get with the people here for a second. They have just finished a building project. They're looking at this wonderful structure and now they open the word and say, oh yeah, you gotta leave those structures and live in a temporary structure in some kind of medium term camping situation right outside your home for a week, right? Where you get to look at your nice house but you don't get to go into it. Why? Well, the booths were given as a sign to Israel to remind them and the nations around them that they were once homeless and that they had been brought from captivity by God into their home. And not just that, they're supposed to remind themselves and the people around them that their ultimate home wasn't here in this world, but with him in his kingdom. We're just temporary residents here. That's what the festival of the booths is supposed to say. And the people had stopped doing it at some point, right? Out of rebellion, out of comfort, out of a mix of the two, and they'd forgotten the magnificence of this symbolism. Here's the thing about camping. It's terrible. (laughs) It is. I mean, it would be fine. I would like it if I had never seen a hotel. But I have, and I can't deny that I've seen them. I know about their existence, right? And so camping is terrible. But even some of you are resisting right now. You're like, now I'm paying attention. I'm a camping guy, right? (laughs) But even people work with me who love camping only really love it because it isn't their permanent scenario. They only really love it because they know they get to go home at some point. And so the temporary accommodation they experience reminds them of the blessings of home. And I get that. The people of Jerusalem are able to enjoy temporary shelters because they know they don't have to live in them any longer. Now they can remember where they have come from with thanksgiving. Oh, we were once homeless, wondering the Lord rescued us. Now they can look forward to their eternal dwelling place with hope. Oh, Jerusalem's not our hope. The new Jerusalem is our hope. I'm just passing through here, right? This whole situation is just a rental. I'm moving on, right? I'm, I'm a person of, of, of heaven's celestial shore. And as they do, look at this congruence with this I'll finish. Look at the ingenious intentionality of this feast. If you've struggled to understand some of the Old Testament stuff, look at this. They are able to piece together the different spheres of their lives because the commandment is that they have to build booths on their own roofs. Why? God wants them to remember this area of faith in their private life. 
But not just that, they commanded to build booths in their courtyard. Why? God wants them to share their faith with their neighbors. But not just that, they're supposed to build booths in the courts of the temple. Why? Because God wants them to carry that remembrance with them into their community of faith. But not just that, they're told to build booths in the marketplace. Why? Because God wants them to know that their vocation too counts for the kingdom of God. Congruence, wholeness, the kind of life of faith we're called to live. Friends, some of you are restless because you've become too comfortable in this world. You've forgotten to look back with thanksgiving and remember what God has brought you through. And your lack of thankfulness is what leaves you dissatisfied. Some of us lack hope. We feel hopeless because we're living as if this world is our ultimate home. As if this city is supposed to be the heavenly city able to fulfill us in a way that it isn't designed to do. Some of us lack a sense of purpose and calling because we haven't integrated the different spheres of our lives under one sovereign rule. (laughs) Some of us lack the stronghold of joy because we aren't hiding ourselves in the stronghold of God's righteousness. Oh my goodness, the people of God are called to center their lives. Center their lives, readjust on the word of God gathering like we do today in unity to hear the word of the expectation, making the most of the sacred moment where we open the book, submitting to the word in humility, seeing it as above us today. Where do you disagree with it? Where do you need to have your mind changed? Responding in worship and a deep desire for more as the spirit moves you today. Respond in worship with your body. And then have a desire for more. Get in a group say, I want to know more about this book. Teach me about this book so that I can teach those around me. Being strengthened in conviction and the joy of the Lord. Friends, the joy of the Lord can be your strength today. You could have walked in here feeling condemned by your rebellion and your wickedness and your sin. Right? We've all got it, right? All of those things this week we shouldn't have done. All of those things. Joy of the Lord is to atone for your sins. It brings him joy. Let that be your strength today. Hide in it. And then obeying the word with thanksgiving, remembering where we've come from and looking forward with hope, knowing that this isn't our ultimate home and asking the spirit to take this truth and to give us a life of congruence where every sphere of our life submits to the truth of God's word. Friends, what a blessing to gather with you today. Oh my goodness, it brings my heart great joy. I pray now that as we respond in worship, we would respond with our whole selves, believing this thing to be true, because it is. Can I just say this as I close? I think the lamest thing in the world is lukewarm Christianity. It makes no sense. None. And it makes for kind of insipid people, of which I am chief. Either this is true, or it's not. If it's true, and it tells us about who God really is, oh, then let's worship that God with everything we have. Father God, thank you so much for your word. 
Lord, we don't worship the word, but we worship the one who the word speaks of, and we know that this is the ultimate place in which we can learn uh, who that is. Uh, you reveal yourself in so many ways, but, but so clearly and so powerfully through your written word. Thank you for it. Lord, I confess that I've taken it for granted. I confess that I have at times held it as, as, a, as a peer or even as something less than my own epistemology where I get to interpret it through my own worldview and get it to, to say what I think it ought to say. Oh, forgive me. Lord, I confess that, that I haven't prioritized gathering in unity with other people who are not God and opening the book so that we can hear from you. Oh, Lord, give us a vibrance for the gathering of the saints. Lord, I confess that I'm all too comfortable at home in this world. I love my suburban life. I don't like thinking of the fact that you brought me out of the wilderness, homeless, hopeless. And then I like to invest so much of my energy in this life as if there isn't another one to come. Father, forgive me, awaken me, awaken us. Stir in our hearts. Lord, I confess that Many times, even in this room, I have run through the motions of corporate worship, of singing, and it hasn't come out in attentive agreement out of my mouth. Amen, amen, may it be so. My hands haven't been raised, my knees haven't been bowed, and it hasn't been because, uh, because I've got some th theological reason for that. It's because I'm just not paying attention. Help us to be attentive to the word. Help us to center our lives on your truth. And may we be changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.